Okay, welcome again, everyone, and uh, a new welcome to anyone who may have joined uh, after the brief introduction. Nice to see so many regular faces and a uh, couple, couple faces that are new to me. Uh, welcome if we're uh, we're connecting for the first time and. And some uh, friendly faces, some friends who I haven't seen in a while. So, um, welcome to you also. Nice to see you. So, I've been um, thinking a little bit about um, about the Buddha as a person. Um, not so much as an archetype, uh, but who was this person and what was their life like? And I think it's hard to know. Um, and I'm not a uh, I'm not a historian. And if I was, and if I had spent eight or nine or ten years working on a PhD to study the Buddha's life, I. I may or may not have any better understanding. The Buddha um, lived a kind of conventional life in a sense, maybe a privileged one, but nonetheless a bit more conventional, and then uh, a life dedicated to spiritual practice and then teaching spiritual um, spiritual teachings. And what he learned and what he talked about with the people that he met along the way in his life um, was handed down from person to person for probably somewhere around uh, 300 years uh, before it started to get written down. So I think as a general rule, that's important for all of us who are interested in uh, really old, you know, ancient spiritual or religious teachings. I think historians and scholars have done a, a, a really good job of, of getting us a, a decent, providing us a decent account of how people lived uh, and what they taught. Um, well, at the same time, I think it's important to, to know that... Um, It's healthy to be uh, inquiring or even suspicious, uh, in a sense. Um, I think particularly in the case of Buddhism, that, that puts us in touch with one of Siddhartha Gautama's, one of the Buddha's messages or teachings, which is that there's all this stuff, there's all these ideas and practices that, that he fundamentally learned from other teachers or developed himself and left us. Um, and that really it's up to us, it's up to us to do them. <laughs> uh, they don't work if we don't apply them. And it's up to us to decide what, what works and what we're going to spend more time focused on, what we're you know, going to put to the, to the side and, and not use, so forth and so on. I don't 
I don't think the Buddha was driven by compassion necessarily. I think that, uh, and again, it's sort of just my own musings and uh, some consideration based on what I've been able to put together and read over the over the years. I do think that it's very possible that the Buddha became um, something that we would call compassionate. I think it's very likely that that was an outgrowth of his meditation practices, his re, his his reflecting on life, particularly pain and, and death and dying, and may very well have been an outgrowth of spending so much time in community. And of course, as um, most or all of you know, there is a strong thread or tradition of compassion within the Buddhist tradition. So uh, compassion uh, does at some point uh, in the development of the Buddha's ideas become uh, central. More central in the uh, Mahayana tradition than in the uh, Hinayana, the Theravada, which uh, we primarily practice at Boston Meditation Center. Um, but nonetheless, it's in there also. My sense was that the Buddha uh, was struggling with his own life, and there were some, you know, massive, uh, daunting questions, and he. Um, he felt uh, an, a need, I think, a, a necessity, um, an urgency uh, to, uh, to have less pain, to be less afraid. By some accounts, uh, the Buddha was experiencing terror and dread around the reality of uh, getting old and uh, getting sick and um and uh and dying um, and that when he confronted with i'm guessing um i'm guessing in many ways people living at the buddhist time are not that different than people living now and um so i'm assuming that uh there was a, a fair amount of denial or repression of these kinds of basic truths and as the accounts go, um, at a certain point, the, the Buddha wasn't able to um, turn away. You know, he wasn't able to turn his glance away from um, seeing and realizing and feeling and ultimately eventually reflecting on, on, on the truth of this. And he goes on to... Uh, work with teachers and practice himself um, to eventually leave us with this core teaching that that life includes uh, a considerable degree of, of dukkha. And my sense is that what the Buddha was feeling was what later became called dukkha. And it was that, that feeling um, that led him to seek out teachers and, and eventually to leave his teachers. 
and uh, to put himself in a in a in a um, really kind of a courageous and radical um, situation, which was to to go deep into the forest uh, and and practice alone in a in a solitary way. Um, But he was in some kind of pain. I think that's fair to say, and he he didn't want to be. Uh, and I think also it's fair to say that he had a, a very high level of curiosity and interest, and, and probably energy. It seemed like he had a lot of energy, which um, I don't know if I always have uh, in, in in the way that sometimes I do, in the way that he did. And he leaves us with this teaching that that um, life uh, life persistently uh, confronts us with this with this dukkha. And for those of you who've been coming around the Dharma for a long time, you might be yawning. Um, you know, not another Dharma talk about dukkha. Um, However, I think that when we truly understand dukkha, when we really, really have enough insight, enough self-understanding, enough understanding of the nature of things and of cause and effect, we actually don't experience very much dukkha. So, if there is distress, if there is um, discord and dissatisfaction, um, if there is a kind of inherent restlessness or angst in the context of our of our day to day life and our living and our relating to other people, we don't yet have a full grasp of this uh, dukkha that the that the Buddha taught. So we all uh, we all we all have a sense of this. If uh, we were going to have a discussion or take a quiz, almost everybody here would have a definition for dukkha. We've heard the teaching so many times. What I'm interested in, however, is what dukkha feels like. And I'd like to ask you to just, and we're not going to report out. I just would like to leave a, a, a few seconds or a minute to for you to sit with that question definitions aside because that really actually is limiting in a sense but what does dukkha feel like for you what is the felt sense do you know it by its felt sense Because looking for it cerebrally by way of definition is short-sighted and probably not going to allow us to catch it and be in right relationship to it. So what does dukkha feel like? 
Because see, as soon as we can start to feel it, right, there's just a felt sense of it. Um, <clears throat> we have an opportunity to really begin to learn how to be in relationship to it in, a very, in, in, in an increasingly skillful way over time. This word dukkha in the Pali uh, does not translate as suffering. And um, it, though it is most often translated as suffering. And that's okay. It's a, suffering is, you know, it's a, it's a catch-all phrase. It means so many different things. And I think that's appropriate given how pervasive dukkha is in our life. The word dukkha was used around the time that the Buddha was alive to refer to or explain what an oxen cart was like to ride in when the axle was not securely connected to one of the wheels. So dukkha is a little bit like trying to push heavy stones in a wheelbarrow that has flat tires. Dukkha is a little bit like wearing pants that are way too tight. Uh, Dukkha is a little bit like having the, the, the atmosphere Fear be so the, the 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 our environment the air the being so humid and 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 so humid and the temperature being so high that um, like like nothing we can do we can't do anything to get comfortable. So th- so th- things are off. Thing, things are not progressing smoothly or with ease or comfortably. Ourselves or our life are kind of um, kind of tilted. Um, we're not upright. Um, we're not sh- sure or steady. At times we could even um, crash. Sometimes we do crash. Um, and we can't be that effective. Right? An oxen cart would be moving people or moving merchandise or goods or food <clears throat> or animals that would become food or would be traded or bartered. And if that axle is not connected to the wheel, there's so much difficulty um, getting to where we need to go and bringing the stuff to the people who need the stuff. We just can't move through the world very well. So we're, 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 we're hindered, we're burdened. And, and, and if we were in a full oxen cart with a whole bunch of chickens and a whole bunch of wood, um, and it was raining heavily, 
maybe it's monsoon season. And we have 140 kilometers to go. And there's what today we would call mechanical problems. We're not going to feel very good. We're going to be in a state of distress. So this inability to, 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 to progress with ease, with a kind of fluidity, and with a surety, uh, we, we will get there. The outcome will be positive, the goods will be delivered, I will, I will receive what I need, my needs will be met. Um, we don't have this. We're, we're not in touch with this. But rather, we're in touch with this and experiencing this dukkha, this um, uh, this tiltedness. Um, something's missing. Something's not quite right. So the the Buddha goes on as as um, many of you know, to tell us that uh, in his, you know, um, formulation of the Four Noble Truths, goes on to tell us that there's a that there's a reason for this. Uh, this is where the Dharma starts to get fairly psychological, in a in a sense, and not not really religious, but. Uh, uh, but psychological, cl- clinical, almost, uh, maybe. Uh, and uh, keeping with the Pali, he says that the, the, the reason for this is Tanha, T-A-N-H-A, Tanha. And um, with the introduction to, to Tanha, what the Buddha is saying is that most of the crookedness or imbalance or lack of ease or confidence uh, is not really due to the to the things or people around us. Um, the 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 axle not being connected to the wheel image is to evoke the felt sense or experience of dukkha, but there's no mechanical or environmental or or uh, relational thing we can point to which is the reason for us not feeling at ease, peaceful, calm, confident, kind, compassionate, acting wisely, etc. And in its most... Um, basic or, or, or stripped down version, what Tanha means is that at the level of experience that is mind, because there's bodily experience and there's, there's mental experience, there's mind, there's the activity of the, of the mind. What the Buddha is saying is that the problem is when we face life and when we experience life, almost all of the time, we don't want things quite as they are, or otherwise we're trying to get something that we don't have, something that we want. So 
our mental energy or our, our psychology is preoccupied with wanting and not wanting. So if we're wanting and not wanting, we're not able to rest with the thing itself, whatever the thing is. The rain, the sun, the sound of another person's voice, the feeling of your in your left hamstring, the news that your partner doesn't want to be with you anymore, the news that your friend relapsed. So there's all of this sensory data, words, images, memories, physical sensations that uh, are coming into consciousness faster than I can snap my fingers. Uh, neuroscientists say that it's so fast that um, well, it's so fast, it, it seems like a, a steady stream of experience that we call me or I, a self, but um, fundamentally that's not accurate. There, there are these mind moments where there's a phenomena from the environment um, that's making contact with consciousness. We see, hear, taste, smell, touch. And at that moment in time, what the Buddha is saying is we're never really fully appreciating or even just open and curious to the thing, whatever the thing is. And he's saying ultimately that if we were, we would be fine. The axle would immediately be connected to the wheel of the cart. But it's wanting or not wanting that leaves us with this dukkha and this wobbly cart. We're not totally settled, not totally solid, not totally aimed forward on the path in a clear and clean way. So there's a reason for this uh, psychological mechanism called, called tanha, um, which is a, a, a vidya in the Pali, which is a kind of basic not knowing it's a misunderstanding that is uh, it's not our fault. Uh, part part of consciousness itself. Talk about uh, subtle, um, and it's so a vidya this this not knowing not knowing about um, about how things not knowing about ourselves not having enough self awareness not knowing how the world works, not knowing about cause and effect, not knowing about tanha. This avidya is so pervasive that we can't see it. it, it avidya is like trying to see the oxygen in the air with your eyes. It's everywhere, and you can't see it. I can't see it. This misunderstanding, which is avidya, despite however old we are and however many years we've lived on the planet and however many hours we've meditated, convinces us that we will feel better, have less dukkha, if we get the thing we want or get rid of the thing we don't want or don't like. In a sense, the Buddha is saying, 
That is all that's happening, nothing else. And if we can see that clearly, understand it better, and overcome or transcend or move through it, peace, equanimity, wisdom, kindness. Axel reconnected to the to the wheel. And that's the and that's the Buddha's third noble truth. The the axle reconnects with the wheel. Um, wisdom, seeing clearly, is like a stop at the mechanics. They hook everything up again uh, and, and and send us on our send us on our way. And the, the you know and, and and then then we come out and like the road is paved also. Um, and the sun is out, um, and the oxen had a rest at the garage. So now the oxen's really strong, and they're just pushing us along at an extra three, pulling us along at an extra three kilometers an hour. So there's this, there's this ease and in, 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 um, a sense of balance in the mind and our life. Like that's that's how we go through life. The ride is smooth. This is cessation. Uh, it's it's the getting rid of or the absence of 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 dukkha, of distress, of dissatisfaction, of in of imbalance. So we're, we're back in balance. With cessation, something goes away and something is obtained. What goes away is dukkha. And what is obtained is, is wisdom or clear seeing, a particular kind of knowledge uh, that, the, that the Buddha spends his whole career trying to explain and, and talk about in different ways. The particular wisdom that is acquired uh, eliminates avidya, this underlying and pervasive not, not knowing. And so, how do we, how do we, um, how do we work toward this possibility of greater ease and, and balance? Um, the, the 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 Buddhist students or. Uh, people in the village who who he was connecting with and say, well, how, how do we do it? Like, sounds good. And um, he laid out a he laid out a path. He laid out a way that we can we can try to do this. And that path is comprised of the development or cultivation of meditation, the culti- the d- cultivation or development of of wisdom or knowledge. Uh, which I've alluded to, and uh, the development of um, uh, of integrity, um, uh, integrity, sila, wisdom, panya, and meditation, samadhi. So, so, so you give us this, this whole framework uh, of of ways to occupy ourselves 
ways to if 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 the Buddha saw the ways we occupied ourselves because he thought people living 2600 years ago were too distracted to attach the axle to the wheel um you know if the buddha were here with us today you know he you know he, i imagine he'd be like you got to get rid of that you got to get rid of that you got to get rid of that you got to stop doing that and forget about that and those people are not really worth your time because they're more confused than you are you know and he 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 he'd start kind of like you know making these lists like you got to look at this stuff cuz it's not helping at all it, it's it's actually contributing to the avidya which is so hard to see. And it's therefore contributing to the tanha, which is creating so much pain. So he, he, he taught renunciation, uh, a kind of a, a getting rid of that which is superfluous, that which is not helpful. He didn't say not have fun, they're singing and dancing and art creating and you know there's all sorts of of good stuff happening um in the villages at the time of the buddha um, but he was talking about getting rid of some external whether temporarily or long term you know like um, and he was doing that as a way to promote an internal renunciation a getting rid of or putting aside views and actions um, that continue to um, put the mind um, um, in this in this experience of, of dukkha ethics is not uh, it's not very popular it's not taught very much and it's kind of falling. Uh, it's kind of falling off of the eightfold path. Um, we're gonna end up with like a five or six or sevenfold path, depending on how things go in the next ten to to, to twenty years, if we're not if we're not careful. Um, I love. Ethics, and when I say I love it, I mean I feel like it's really intellectually and emotionally and spiritually um, very, very subtle uh, and very, very challenging. So I actually get excited about it. I have for a very, very long time. Um, and I think it's problematic and maybe not taught as much because... If we teach it a particular way, or if we if we're um, too literal in our translation or interpretation or articulation, it can start to sound moralistic or or religious, rule rule bound, top down, hierarchical. Um, ultimately, I think what ultimately I think. Um, ethics comes down to being interested in knowing a lot about cause and effect. So again, it's 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 much more psychological than it is religious rulemaking and rule following. You know, um, you know, it's like if you put 
salami on your peanut butter sandwich and it tastes gross, don't do that again. Don't do it. Don't make that mistake again. But if you put apricot preserve on your peanut butter sandwich and you toast the bread a little bit before and it tastes awesome, well, you should have that again tomorrow for lunch. That's cause and effect. Just like when you're receiving news that you hoped you would not. And in the hearing of it, you start to get anxious and use a very aggressive tone of voice when replying to the person giving you the information. And there's a contraction within you and obviously within the other person because then now they're starting to raise their voice. In this happens every time this one person delivers information to you. Then we have to then you then you have to go back to the beginning of feeling the 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 um the hypo energy of the anxiety, right? And putting your attention in the body and resting and waiting and not saying anything. Or not saying anything with that tone that precipitated this chain of events. Right? Don't use that tone. Don't use that tone of voice. So ethics is seeing cause and effect in as many areas and as many domains of our life as possible. We start to track it. Right? It's just like, um, like uh, I had to get out of the house during COVID, so I bought a bicycle. Now, after a bike ride, if I work, a, most of you know I work a lot. And at the end of the day, even if I've had a great day, my mind is pretty tight. Like it gets tighter throughout the day. Um, and if I go into a business meeting or better example, if I go into the kitchen and have a conversation with my wife, it doesn't mean it's not going to go bad, but there's a there's the conversation I have with my wife immediately after work, and there's the conversation I have with my wife after an hour long bike ride. Totally different conversation. That's causing effect. So, I, what what is causing what? That's the inquiry. I mean, you can fill in the blanks. I don't need to explain that. Um, So there's a, there's, there's a very distinct kind of knowledge that we acquire over time when uh, integrity, uh, integrity is being interested and curious and accountable, uh, interested and curious in our actions and accountable for them. So there's, that's happening all the time and then we're, we're taking time out of our day to meditate and then these two, these, they 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 come together in a particular way where we are able to uh, register experientially moments of ease and peace and see 
you know, start to get a glimpse of why the mind is at ease. Simultaneously, we're much more attuned to this, this dukkha because we're not pushing it away so much. And we're able to see, kind of look around the edges and the corners and kind of say, look, oh, this is why this is happening. This is why there's dukkha. And so as, as, this, as this knowledge of um, the Eightfold Path begins with right view and there's this mundane right view. I don't know the Pali for mundane. There's this mundane right view that knows cause and effect is real and needs to be paid attention to. And because we pay attention to it, developmentally over time, this, this right view continues to fold back on itself in a positive feedback loop, and it leads to something called superior uh, right view. So this, 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 yeah, I get it, cause and effect is real, um, um, is, 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 is conditional, leading to something that's uh, more fruitful and not yet fully manifest. And as the practice develops, there's this superior right view, which sees the Four Noble Truths really deeply crystal clear. Like, there's this sense, there's this felt sense of dukkha now. is much easier to track. Simultaneously, it's, it's, it's much easier to... to to, to be less reactive and more responsive. So maybe there's more responsive would be, would mean like an example would be maybe, maybe more kind than irritable or angry, right? If we're practicing, there's, there's some space that opens up so we can watch our inner landscape of thoughts and feelings and moods and attitudes. And then we're always thinking like, well, what's gonna happen if I respond right now. So it's like we're going through our day saying, what's skillful now? What's skillful now? What's skillful now? What's skillful now? I do this all, I do this all the time. I eat breakfast and I sit, I'm sitting, I'm drinking my coffee. I'm like, what's skillful right now? Okay, I should go for a walk. I should take a shower. I should do an email. I should... I should never open my email again. I should just write. I should just write. And then you, you know, you're writing and you're starting to, the, the, kind of the mind's kind of heavy and cloudy. So, oh, that doesn't, and I, you know, I'm not really writing anything that sounds good. And like, well, what's skillful now? Now I need to go for a walk, right? That's the opposite of habituation, of just moving through the world as if, you know, um, someone is pushing us and we don't really have any choice. So when 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 man, when when um, the superior or more um, uh, more developed right view is present, we see we really clear we see this whole formula in motion, and and we're uh, we're responsive to it. And and in in the in the way it's written is. Um, you know, suffering exists, tanha exists, cessation is possible, and there's a way, maga, path is maga in Pali. There's a way to do this. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, 
you know, if we take it too much like a religious teaching, there's a sense of like, oh, this is just how it is and I have to believe it. But even if you believe it, are you free? Because the Buddha didn't teach believing in things. He taught, he taught about scrutinizing beliefs until we're free. Being suspicious of everything. So the Four Noble Truths want to be experienced and felt. Um, and they're not really rendered that way necessarily. In the, in the, there's sort of just like a, a religious formula or law and, you know, like, you know, let's, let's get on board for that. And um, uh, Stephen Batchelor, who some of you will know, said, well, it's really not, they're really not the Four Noble Truths. They're really the four tasks, things we need to do. We need to feel dukkha. Yeah, we need to understand tana. We need to experience cessation. We need to apply ourselves on the path. Ethics, meditation, and, and panya, wisdom. And and uh, I've taken it another step and in, in, in over the past few years, I don't know when I started doing this, over the past few years I've restarted thinking about these in even what I think is even more practical Terms and I'm not um, in disagreement with Stephen Batchelor at all. I think that they are tasks to be experienced in the way that he is are, are advocating for. Though if we do that, they are truly for insights to be had or to be understood or to, to be embodied. And so much more practically at that point, the first noble truth of Dukkha is to be honest about the suffering of our lives, to be real, to be true, to be genuine, to be authentic, to see it and feel it, right? There is no, there is no Dharma path without experiencing Dukkha. There's no path. In the second noble truth, Tanha, um, would be to be aware of the cause of that suffering, to be aware of the cause of suffering, so we know. And the third, what is referred to traditionally as the third noble truth, cessation, would be, uh, in, in the example that I'm giving, to be optimistic about the alleviation of tana and dukkha. And uh, four, four path, uh, to be skillful in the removal of dukkha. To be skillful in the removal of dukkha. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to convey a sense of the path as an embodied experience. This is not um, a cerebral undertaking. Study helps. Study is, is, is part of panya, part of the development of panya. So with the, with the, in closing, what the Buddha is asking us to do is to be um, in direct relationship to suffering, not push it away, be curious. I would say be really humble and transparent and honest. A willingness to be vulnerable. To become through this threefold practice, aware over and over again. We don't, we don't 
have the experience once and end up free for the rest of our lives. To continue to seek clarity and awareness of this tanha. To also know that experientially what it feels like. Oh, right now this is tanha. This is craving. This is pushing away. This is aversion. This is wanting. And it's making the mind tighter. And to be optimistic about um, the alleviation of these experiences because we've had, we've had moments of being free of them, right? So the confidence is, is natural. And, and, and being skilled at their, their removal, you see these all double back on each other. Being skilled in removal is, is, is taking on the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. Which is what allows us to do the first three. Be with suffering, be aware of its cause, and be optimistic about their alleviation. So those are some, some thoughts on uh, the Four Noble Truths, what I like to sometimes call the Four Noble Insights. Um, I hope that in some way it's, it's helpful to you and um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. Thank you. I'd also like now to invite you to unmute your um, mic if you want and 